the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode features our final two interviews recorded at the Indo-Pacific 2023 event in Sydney. The first is with David Goodrich, Executive Chairman and CEO of Anderul Australia, and Dr Shane Arnott, Senior Vice President of Engineering at Anderul Industries. We discuss their engagement with Australian defence industry, their Ghost Shark program, and autonomous systems in general. David, welcome to the show. Let's have a quick chat about the latest news that you've just brought out. Went live today about bringing a whole lot of uh, Australian industry to the fore with the Ghost Shark Project. Thank you very much for having Dr. Shane Arden and myself on your podcast today. Um, it's a very exciting day for us, but I really think the best person to answer that question is Dr. Arnott because he's leading our program uh, for the Ghost Shark. Okay, and we'll get to uh, Dr. Arnott in just a sec though, but you did mention to me that this is delivering on a promise. It certainly is. You know, I was saying before we started the interview that um, when Shane and I started this business about 15 months ago, um, we made a promise to the Australian people that we would deliver three Ghost Shark prototypes in three years and that we would build a strong, robust, sovereign supply chain to support the program. And uh, there were um, a number of people who said both of those things would not happen. Today is about an, an announcement which fulfills that promise. Shane, thanks very much for uh, your time. Uh, let's talk about that promise and how it was delivered today. For sure. Thanks, Grant, and uh, thanks for having us. So uh, as part of this program, we've announced 10 suppliers, uh, to David's point, so across all the states in, in the country. Uh, we actually have a lot more suppliers, but we're, we're announcing Ron Allum, um, who worked with uh, James Cameron on the Titanic with the um, Subsea Challenger, Sonodyne, that's a UK company, but we've brought them here to Australia as part of the Go Shark program, which is quite exciting from an Orca standpoint. ACS Australia doing skins for us, Advanced Navigation, that's a startup, doing some great stuff in space, subsurface, all difficult navigation uh, domains. AMC Search down in Tasmania, Morant, who do a lot of structures for F-35, etc. Microelectronics uh, Technologies in Queensland, Matrix Composites, Axiom, and Advanced Power Drive. So I want to get all those names out. But uh, quite a big deal. You know, this, this is a very exciting program in, to our knowledge, the first Australian-designed submarine ever. So all the submarines that we've operated as a nation have either been British or Swedish or come from somewhere else. So the first significant sub, subsea capability that's been designed here in Australia, getting built here, and hopefully eventually will be manufactured along with this Australian supply chain that we've talked about. And, and it's fully autonomous? Fully autonomous. Um, so designed to be human on the loop, of course. So these capabilities are here to complement uh, other systems that are out there, but the human is always the decision maker for these capabilities, um, but fully autonomous as it relates to navigation, getting where it needs to go, which is quite a challenge when you're going very large distances with a very large vehicle like this one is. Now, just to come back to the program itself and the Australian industry content and capability, uh, we're seeing a lot of delays on AIC because of the DSR pushbacks, the surface review, everything being pushed back and so on. Uh, here you are bringing together Australian industry to create what could very well be a fantastic export to the world. So 
how has that been? How are you finding Australian industry is reacting at the moment? Well, as part of the program, um, the Ghost Shark team have actually met with uh, and engaged with over 50 Australian small to medium enterprises. We're announcing 10 today, and so as Dr. Arnott said, um, there's many, many more coming. Um, however, um, yeah, the uncertainty associated with um, you know, the, the outcomes of the, the Defence Strategic Review has caused um, you know, some, some concern amongst um, industry. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, something we wish could be um, finalised as soon as possible, but from Andrew Australia's perspective, we just haven't let that stop us. With our partners, the Defence Science and Technology Group, DSTG, and the Royal Australian Navy, um, we have continued to press um, and press as hard as we can. Shane and I started the business about 15 months ago. We're now 72 people um, heading over 80 in the next couple of months. Um, and that combined team of Andrew Australia, DSTG and Navy are working in sync every single day to deliver this incredible program. And how do you see the program developing? I mean, at the moment it's demonstrations and so on. It's, it's a tangible product. Um, where do you see it going over the next few years? Well, we continue to focus on performance and delivery of capability. Um, we believe that if we continue to do that, um, it will become a very compelling opportunity for Australia to embrace this autonomous capability to support and enhance um, and work with our exquisite crude capabilities in the undersea domain. Um, and that's going to make us a formidable adversary um, in a very contested part of um, you know, the Indo-Pacific. So we're excited about the prospects. Um, we're working hard to deliver on this contract, but ultimately we certainly hope that there is a program of record awarded to enable us to do what we do best, which is to manufacture capability at scale. So Shane, we've got the autonomous capability. Uh, before we started recording, uh, we were talking very briefly about the concept of uh, man-unmanned teaming and also in, in Air Force speak, the loyal wingman. So is this where you see autonomy really working is to, as we're being discussed, to augment humanity and, and assist the, man, the human in the loop rather than replacing them? Yeah, of course. So autonomy is really about speed and scale. So being able to get through workflow a lot quicker and then dealing with more stuff at the same time. So it is all about being a complementary, not a replacement capability. So you can never take the, the human out of the loop. Human always has to be very centrally part of that, particularly any war fighting actions. That's just ethically responsible. So as the West, we're never going to change that. Now, we need to build systems that have those safeguards in place, and that's what we're doing, to make sure there's the locks and the, the humans always, you know, with the, the finger um, on the button or whatever it is that needs to be done to do that. But yeah, these, these things are not replacement, complementary. We've got big problems to solve as a nation. We don't have a lot of population, so we need robots to help supplement and deal with that scale, particularly against the rising threat in the region. And we have already seen Chief of Navy saying, we'll take new people. In fact, just this morning, he was saying, we'll take people who have left and want to come back. And we'll even take people who are looking for a mid-career mid change. So clearly, Australia's got a problem with recruiting. Uh, we don't have enough for all our platforms across the range of the ADF. So I guess the uh, autonomous systems are the way to augment the few people that we actually have, yeah? Yeah, and I think this is kind of what's of interest. Australia is a great place to build autonomous systems. And in part, it's the need, like what we're talking about. We're a small country. 
with a you know low population density but biggest island nation in the world, right? So we've got a lot of ground we need to cover. But in doing so, uh, we've also got a lot of space to try things out. Yep. So we've got a lot of water space, we've got a lot of air space. So that great, creates a great sandbox for companies like Andrel to invest here. So that's a key point as part of GoShark. This is a co-investment program where we've put as much skin in the game. We've put $70 million in, so as the Commonwealth, uh, to deliver this capability. Then on top of that, we've been good with our suppliers. We're enabling them to retain their IP. So there's more money flowing into this program because of this supplier engagement. Um, because they're retaining their IP, they can bring more money from their investors, etc. And just using this program kind of as a campfire to focus development. So it's a new way of doing things in defence at least, in the rest, every other industry in the world, it kind of works this way. So we're trying to provide these, you know, opportunities for these companies to do something different, help them grow at the same time that we're growing. And you just mentioned not necessarily just defence, but also civilian, you've got the Dive LD version of the Ghost Shark. So can you talk a little bit about the civilian opportunities here? Yeah, so there's great opportunity with uh, seabed survey, pipeline, um, surveillance, you know, things like that. So huge opportunities for this vessel, plus the smaller one you talked about, the Dive LD. So Ghost Shark is the military version. Dive XL is the commercial version. So we've got applications for both of those. And that just enables a wider market, gain for the supply chain. For us, it gets uh, better pricing as well for the Defence Force customer because it all matters, the denominator, how many of these things you sell, yeah. is kind of what the price is to the customer. So that delivers affordable mass, which is what Australia needs and all our customers need. It's good for everyone. And that, that scale, as you were talking about, yeah, the, the more you're building, the, the lower the unit price, etc. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so we've got the autonomous systems. I guess that would allow us to supplement our manned platforms. The, the submarines that we currently have, the, the frigates we currently have, the future platforms that we're going to have, do you see these becoming a uh, central core with a whole range of autonomous systems working with them in conjunction? Yeah, that's the expectation. So as part of the force structure, more and more autonomous systems will be supplementing these crewed systems. So reserving them for the more um, exotic, you know, things that humans just need to be at the centre of, but also command and control of these things. But the scale problem is, you know, dramatically changing with the threat, like, let's be real. Um, so gone are the days where we can do it with the onesies, twosies. We just need to generate, and not just Australia, but the US, UK, all of our partners, Japan, etc., in the region. So how do we figure this out? How do we make sure that, you know, we can do command and control grants across AUKUS, across, you know, bilateral members with Japan, et cetera. So these are all part of the problem that we're looking to solve as well. Yeah, and you don't see these systems, like they supplement, they don't, as you said, they don't replace. So there'll always be a position for the manned platforms. Of course, yeah, yeah. The, the human is unreplaceable in these situations. I mean, that's just reality. Again, this helps with the speed and the scale problem Scale problem's the big one that we're trying to solve right now. And also allows the humans to stay back and not be so close to the front yeah. line. Get, get the human out of farm's way. Yeah. So David, back to yourself. We've just spoken about the uh, tech side of things. Uh, where do you see Anderul Australia going, the, uh, the, the platforms that you're working on and your work with the military, both within Australia and overseas? 
We started this business 15 months ago. Um, we're now 72 people in 15 months. Uh, it's an enormously fast growth curve. Uh, we think we could be double that inside of a year and a half. Uh, and we are looking to have a major program of record uh, in all of the domains that um, we operate in in Australia here. So the land domain, we obviously have the maritime domain, the air domain. Um, and you know, one day we look to um, you know, have ground uh, capabilities as well. So we are growing fast. We're looking to use our, our um, autonomous expertise and our capability um, to get the human out of harm's way uh, and to build partnerships with customers in the Asia Pacific region. I am both the chairman and, and chief executive of Evangel Australia and Andrew Asia Pacific. We're working very closely with our Japanese partners at the moment, and we look to be um, we're excited to be announcing some new capabilities in Japan over the next 12 months. So, it is a very, very fast-growing um, company, uh, and the, the wonderful thing is that we're able to attract an amazingly diverse range of Australians to come work with us, and they're not from the traditional typical places. So we're getting people from a range of different industries, from tech, uh, from academia, from um, defense industry, from government, and we're fusing them into what is an amazing team. And it's, uh, I often say to Shane, it feels like we've had this team together for, for five or seven years when we've literally been together for five or seven minutes. And that comes because we're doing important work, we're doing exciting programs, uh, and we're not afraid to take a bit of risk and to use our own money to do that. So while we're here sitting around the table, anything uh, final that you'd like to say before we wrap up this interview? I would just like to say that, you know, the start of Andrew's journey in the last 15 months has been literally a rocket ride. Um, the Ghost Shark program continues to accelerate ahead of schedule. Um, both Shane and I, I think I can speak for Shane, feel very, very fortunate to have built the, the, the amazing team that we have in Andrew Australia. Uh, and we're looking forward to continue to deliver. Yeah, just double tap on the team. So the diversity of the team is amazing and we are growing. So for all the listeners out there, we're looking for the best talent in Australia. To date, we have been able to attract that because it's a tech company. So in defense, it hasn't been the greatest place to work. For various reasons, you've got to turn up to work in a suit. You know, I'm sitting here in my trainers and, and my tech gear. Um, we're attracting people across, you know, all different varieties, but bringing them and focusing them on the most difficult problems. So if you're interested in solving good problems and you're some of the best engineers out there, look us up. We're growing right now. We're looking for the best talent in the country. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having us. Our second interview is with Liam Caddison. He's a business development manager at Lockheed Martin Australia, and he talks to us about the Aegis system's development from back in the late 60s through to its current capabilities and also about its future directions, including its deployment in Australia. Liam Caddison, you're the Business Development Manager with Lockheed Martin Integrated Air and Missile Defence. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. That was quite a mouthful, but the main reason we're here is to talk about your involvement with Aegis. Yes, so um, one of the uh, functions that we have in Australia is we are the Australian custodian of the Aegis Combat System, which is the most prolific uh, combat system in the world, probably the most important combat system, certainly in the Indo-Pacific. 
it's uh, on a hundred platforms, on ten different classes, deployed by six different nations. Um, colloquially known as the Shield of the Fleet, but we like to refer to it as the Shield of the Indo-Pacific. Well, it's certainly shielding more than just the fleet these days, but uh, you've had a pretty hands-on experience with Aegis uh, in an operational role in your past. Yes, so prior to joining Lockheed Martin, I served 13 years in the Royal Australian Navy full-time. I was a principal warfare officer, and I had the pleasure of commissioning Australia's first Aegis destroyer, uh, HMAS Hobart, DDG-39. Excellent. And uh, so you've got a lot of hands-on experience, plus also now in industry with Lockheed Martin. Aegis started as Shield of the Fleet a long time ago. Can you give us a quick boilerplate on how Aegis got to where it is now? Sure. And I guess most people are students of history. So in the late 60s, I think it was 1969, the US Navy started seeing the proliferation of anti-ship missiles deployed by the Soviet Navy. So in the wake of that, they focused on a counter-program to that. In 1970, a captain by the name of Wayne E. Meyer, colloquially referred to as the father of Aegis, was in charge of that program and led that all the way through um, the development cycle uh, into the 1980s when the first Aegis uh, ships were deployed, the Ticonderoga class, um, and then the subsequent iterations of that for the US Navy um, onto the Ali Burke destroyer. Um, since the 2000s, the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, the Republic of Korean Navy, the Norwegian Navy, the Spanish Navy, and the Royal Australian Navy are all proud Aegis users. So, and I'll get the name right now, Aegis, instead mm-hmm. of Aegis. So with Aegis, the, uh, I believe we're up to uh, release nine just about to come out? That, that's correct. So one of the um, pathways for Aegis will be to upgrade the Hobart class to baseline nine, so under the program C4000 Phase 6. Okay. So we've got uh, eight currently out there, and was it around, was it eight or is it nine that will introduce the ballistic missile protection component? So part of baseline nine will be the ballistic missile defense component. I think it'll be baseline 5.1 BMD um, as a component of baseline nine. But what's really, really cool about baseline nine, it is the first iteration of the Aegis Common Source Library, which is a software iterative development process allowing for a rapid delivery of software without necessarily having to wait for a larger scale um, contemporary upgrade program. Yeah, because uh, safety certifications and how the whole system goes together can take quite a while. Uh, I know from experience that that's delayed a number of uh, software systems on board aircraft and so on. So uh, are you using like a a DevOps or an iterative development environment to help get that out faster? So that's the aspirational approach for Lockheed Martin as we move towards the integrated Um, the integrated combat system, which will be the next iteration beyond Baseline 9 of the Aegis combat system. Since Baseline 7, there has been a focus and a push to start shifting towards the use of uh, MOTS and COTS hardware, standardising baselines, and then the development of the Common Source Library, which is taking the core functions and programs of the combat system um, and then allowing that to be then integrated into the system as required and then updated as different things. Think of it sort of as an application layer for your phone, but for the combat system. So you just started on on the ships. It was the shield of the fleet. Yes. But as you said, it's now shield of the Pacific and it's shield of so much more because it's not just only on ships anymore, is it? No, that's correct. Um, you know, it is the gold standard for integrated air and missile defence and ballistic missile defence. So there has been a concerted push to deploy it into the land-based 
um, sort of programs. So the US military through Missile Defense Agency using Aegis Ashore, um, contemporary approaches from that, Aegis Ashore afloat for the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force, as well as a, a really important iteration of Aegis that we are, that has starting to be, it's a program of record now with the US that's starting to be deployed and that's virtualized Aegis warfare system. So it's taking the functionality of uh, you know, say a baseline nine destroyer that we'll have on the Hobart class DDG, uh, and taking that functionality, putting it in a different form factor, and being able to deploy it to support land-based air and missile defence applications. For example, for things, a, a program such as the S sixty five hundred Joint Air Battle Management System program. So virtualized, as in it's running in a cloud environment, or is it a local cloud, or? Because I imagine that um, Aegis on board a ship would have a lot of <clears throat> custom servers and other such hardware. So, so think of taking um, those specific equipment racks and then virtualizing that into sort of a, a virtualized machine on on a you know running on specific hardware. So the importance of that is it reduces power, space, um, and weight requirements, um, so that can be more deployable. Um, around the field on, and also in the littoral on sort of uncrewed vessels as well. So there's a direct application for, you know, having some form of maneuverability when people think of Aegis, traditionally they think of, you know, a couple of uh, compartments on a ship full of racks of equipment. It's taking some of those core components down and then virtualizing that so you can reduce that footprint. Now, depending on what the function is for that for, and the mission set for that sort of program, will determine what that form factor looks like. Because you may not need everything that's in a full Aegis kit out to do localised defence of a forward beachhead, for example. And, and correct, and there will be other um, key elements that make up, that, that are peripheral to the combat system that are required that may not necessarily be virtualised at this point in time. Think um, processing for sensors, um, other feeds into the combat system, as well as um, racks for, of equipment for weapons. And there was recently a test where I believe it was an F-35 in the US was sending uh, like sensor information back to a centralised location where like best sensor, best um, effector kind of environment. Was that correct? That's correct. And, you know, one of the, the focuses for the next generation and, you know, as we shift towards a 2035 operational environment is really trying to harness some of that, that joint all domain command and control as well as integrated fire control across that as well. So a platform such as an F-35 can draw in an incredible amount of data and the ability to be able to pass that data, make tactical decisions, and then get that in the hands of the warfighter and into the combat system to be able to, to leverage that information and, and take decisive action is absolutely key for survival as we start facing more advanced threats, faster threats, uh, low probability of intercept. So it's, it's giving, you know, the one thing that you're always short of when you're looking at um, Air and missile defense is time, right? And and the best way to start with that is you always start from zero and work back. And zero is impact with you, right? When you've lost the battle. So any opportunity you can find to either lengthen that 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 time of engagement to increase your depth of fire uh, is really going to enhance your ability to be able to provide effects uh, within the AO. Yeah. So for instance, a picket ship feeding in, uh, being able to tell you a lot earlier than the radar on the on the missile platform itself and then feeding a missile off somewhere else in the fleet, etc. Absolutely, and I think, I think you know, that's a, that's a good example of where a capability such as cooperative engagement capability, CEC, provides the advantage 
one of the challenges that surface ships have um, is that the Earth is curved, right? So the curvature of the Earth gives you a limited radar horizon. A plane flying at 35,000 feet um, is not necessarily encumbered with such of that. So instead of having, say, a 20 mile radar horizon, it's more like two, three, 400 miles of that height. So um, something that's flying, you know, uh, near the certain, you know, a threat that's flying on the sea surface that you detect at 20 miles, say that it's doing 600 knots, which is a good contemporary speed, gives the operator two minutes to do something if you detect it at 20 miles. That's 20 minutes at 200 miles. If it's flying at three times at the sound speed of sound, you divide that by three. So at 20 miles, that engagement's now limited to 40 seconds, right? Yeah. If you half that detection because um, you're having a bad environmental day, all of a sudden you're sitting at, you get a detection at 10 miles and you have 20 seconds to do something. Um, and that might feel like a long time and certainly for the operator as it comes in, probably feels like an eternity, but 20 seconds is not long. No, not a long time to recognise that it's there on the screen, assess it, to read in all the information that's being presented, and then make a decision that goes through the relay chain to the person who pushes the button. And there are a lot of functionality that we have in the combat system that can buy the operator time. What we're looking at for, you know, the increments associated outside of that for integrated fire control is what else can we do to help speed up that process? And, and that's trying to understand if we can get queuing earlier. And another aspect um, looking forward mm -hmm. is everyone's talking hypersonics now and yes. there's some hypersonic missiles in reality apparently and how well they behave we'll find out but uh, is that part of what Aegis can do now or is there a, is a baseline 9 or beyond that Aegis will handle that? So ballistic missile defence functionality has been part of specific Aegis baselines probably since the early 2000s and I think the US Navy will um, were absolutely at the forefront of ballistic missile defence, you know, which is the initial, I would say, it's probably core counter hypersonics at this point in time, as we wait to see things like hypersonic glide vehicles and more exotic threats come into the domain. The Australian Navy, when they receive Baseline 9, will have their first ballistic missile defence um, baseline included in that. And, you know, that coupled with an effector such as SM6, you know, allows them to do you know, that really high-end threat, um, what we would consider counter-hypersonics, um, you know, defense in that space. And that's gonna be, you know, when we first got out, it's gonna be revolutionary. When we first got an Aegis destroyer, we had, you know, our, our fleet was, uh, consisted of, you know, Anzac class FFHs that were starting to go up with their first upgrade into ASMD, right, which, you know, brought a CEA phased array radar to the fleet and it, it, that that changed how we started to do business. And we had FFG up, so our Oliver Hazard Perrys, we had six, went down to four, they went into um, FFG upgrade, which then delivered SM2. Um, Aegis was the next iteration associated with that. It was vertically launched SM2, Spy-1 phased array radar, and an advanced combat system. And that, that really propelled us on this path of uh, how we did business and how we used to look at the fight, right? Instead of being what was a reasonably informed target with a limited ability to be able to defend outside of specific threats, you know, suddenly we had, you know, this, this ability to project power into space. And it was quite interesting. The first time we took an Aegis destroyer through the Indo-Pacific, you know, that was in 2019. Um, and we, we pulled into Yokosuka, Japan. Um, you know, we birthed next to a Japanese um, Congo class, you know, Aegis destroyer 
on the other side of that, there were Ticonderoga class uh, cruisers and um, Ali Burks, you know, DDG. So, and you know, it's like, wow, we're part of this Aegis Navy now. Um, and the first thing that was sort of the commented to us as the crew was like, wow, your ship is incredible. You have, you know, in, in, instead of what, um, what, what Australia was renowned for before, which is, you know, incredibly professional sailors and, and warfare officers um, who absolutely, you know, are, are world leading in their approach to um, professionalism and, and, and deploying and delivering on those effects. They finally had equipment that was up to their standard, right? And then the world took notice, right? That that was, you know, that was the most popular thing. Um, people wanted to talk about, oh, you've got an agency. What can you do? When can we work together? What operations? What exercises? Um, you know, and that that was commented, you know, on the different port um, port visits we did. And it was the, I think it was the back end of that deployment. We were doing an exercise, and there was, um, you know, four Aegis ships from four different countries all operating you know in the Indo-Pacific um, together and it was you know that was a forebear of you know what the future looks yeah. like and and you know from that point forward the Australian Navy's been driving forward we've got three destroyers in service now and you know with the um, with Hunter coming online um, you know that'll increase the number of Aegis platforms we have to make us one of the more prevalent Aegis navies um, around right and that and that you know, we talk about this need for um, mention of the DSR around, you know, a, an A2AD approach, so anti-access area denial, the ability to project power. Um, you know, Aegis ships project power. Um, they know, people want to know where they are for, for either, you know, either allies and coalition partners because they know what we can do. And our adversary wants to know where they are so they can make sure they're not there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... A lot of great stuff going on with Aegis. Uh, there's the Australian interface that you're working with Saab, I believe it is, to make that happen. Yeah, so that's correct. And that was stipulated as part of C5000, um, you know, utilising, you know, the, the, the Aegis combat system as well as a, a Saab 9LV tactical interface, which is called the Australian interface. So um, the way that's doing is um, allowing for, you know, some parts that aren't necessarily core Aegis um, combat system components um, that can be integrated into through you know a, a successful combat system you know 9LV it's on um, numerous classes of ship the Anzac um, it's on the LHD so the Canberra yeah. class as well as I believe it's on the supply class tanker and, and, and it's it's the CMS of choice for the OPV so there is a you know a rich vein of development history that's come from you know Saab and Saab Australia in that space so this is an opportunity to sort of meld probably the best of both worlds, right? Um, because when it comes to those core Aegis functions, they're, you know, it's sort of second to none. But, you know, integrated air and missile defense and strike and some of these things aren't necessarily the whole function and operation for, for what a platform might do. And that's where we sort of, well, that's where 9LV um, yeah. sort of fits into that, that Australian interface. Okay. Shifting gears once again, you mentioned before land-based systems and sure. so on. Yep. And you pointed out to me just before we started recording about a uh, vertical launch system in a container. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, so, so one of the, the, the key products that has been brought into service with the U.S. Army is the, the Mark 70 Universal Mobile Launcher. Right? Um, they, the U.S. Army term it uh, the program mid-range capability. It is a Mark 41 vertical launch system. So the essentially the gold standard again once you know a core part of the Aegis combat system 
um, but it's put into a 40-foot shipping container. It has different ablatives, but it is, a, a, it is in, in terms of functionality um, and capability, it is a, it is a deployable mobile um, you know, Mark 41 yeah. launcher. So coupled that with the virtualized Aegis weapon system, you know, suddenly you've got um, the ability to deploy um, to the, you know, for that for that um, medium range ground based air defense, a baseline nine destroyer. Yeah. Right. You know, which is the core tenant for the defense of a you know a carrier strike group for the U.S. Navy. Right. So we talk about if we want to talk about a high level of functionality, you you talk about the commonality of um, effectors that can be employed by Mark Forty One. Anything from ESSM to Tomahawk and everything else in between, including things such as SM2, which is in service with the Royal Australian Navy, and SM6, which will be brought in as part of that, that next baseline upgrade, right? So you have a, a common launcher, um, you have common effectors, you have a common combat system between you know, different services, um, and, and suddenly you can sort of see that thread of, um, of Aegis that, that sort of runs from Australia all the way up the spine of the Indo-Pacific to Yokosuka in Japan and, and sort of beyond, right? So when we talk about that being the shield of the Indo-Pacific and, and what we're looking at doing, right, we're talking about a combat system that is deployed, you know, across the region, um, not only on um, you know, maritime platforms, but in the future um, on, on land-based platforms by, you know, the US, the US military as well. Um, and the form factor associated with that means that you have the ability to potentially take those launches and put them on um, unconventional platforms. In fact, the US Navy last week, sorry, it was a couple of weeks ago, did a firing um, from a littoral combat ship uh, where they had the launcher on the back and fired an SM6 um, off the back of it, right? So a traditional non-Mark 41 platform suddenly has the ability mm. to be able to, you know, really impact that battle space and sort of reach out and touch um, those threats there, you know. So in, the enemy's planning is certainly complicated in that space, um, you know, because suddenly something that might have only warranted a small response um, has the ability now to affect it, and that has to factor into somebody's planning. Yeah, you never know where these things are going to pop up now. I mean, a 40-foot shipping container is a 40-foot shipping yeah. container as well, so there's incredible asymmetry associated with that. Yep. No, exact. So let's just take a very quick look. Two last things. One is you've mentioned Baseline 9. Yes. Coming soon. And are you able to tell us what you've mentioned a little bit about what to expect coming beyond Baseline 9 and, and later versions? Are you allowed to give us an indication of the roadmap for Aegis within what's publicly allowed to be told? Sure. So, so the US Navy is moving towards a singular integrated combat system that they will put on all of their platforms. Lockheed Martin was awarded the contract for the systems and integration and software engineering associated with that. So it is an Aegis-based combat system platform utilizing the common source library. So instead of having a CMS that is on an aircraft carrier that's different to one that's on an Ali Burke, that's different to a littoral combat ship, it's having one combat system across the fleet, you know, which gives you scalability, it gives you um, you know, efficiencies associated with training, support, sustainment, um, all, all these elements. So, you know, that's the direction the US Navy is looking at. And, and I wouldn't surprise you that, he, that Aegis is, it, it's not necessarily going to be termed Aegis at this point, it's just called the Integrated Combat System, but 
you know, it's, it's core ages as well, right? So we've had 50 years of ages and this is the next 50 years, right? Yeah. And which is an incredible run. Um, you know, it, it, we, you know we, we look forward to our, we're, we just entered our sixth year as an Aegis Navy. Um, and, you know, it, it'll be in service, you know, when the hunters are, are retired in 2070 something. So most of us will be retired if not uh, moved on to, uh, at that point, right? But it is something that'll be safeguarding this nation for a long time and our coalition partners as well, so. Excellent, and it's not just Lockheed Martin, of course, it's Lockheed Martin Australia. That's and correct. you are heavily involved with uh, local industry, bringing them along on this journey. Yes, absolutely. One of the one of the main focuses we've had is been developing a sovereign Australian Aegis workforce. Um, the team that we have working in Adelaide and also based in Sydney at Fleet Base East um, started off as a team of one in 2017 and now have evolved um, and will continue to expand. And there is a commitment. Um, from Lockheed Martin Australia as well as the Royal Australian Navy to make sure that we have uh, a sovereign workforce so that we can be insulated against some of the challenges. In fact, during COVID, the Lockheed Martin Australia did the first sort of software upgrade to an, an Aegis combat system in the world. And they did it through necessity. They had the expertise to do it, but it hadn't been tried before. But the global pandemic for, with um, the impacts to travel you know, forced us down this path and we took it on with, um, with alacrity. And, and, you know, that has been the development. And how we've been able to do that is we've been, you know, very, very proactive in securing, you know, a whole lot of experience from the US, but not just to bring them over to do as a function, but to mentor, to train, to make sure that, you know, our, our young men and women who are technicians who work on this equipment are starting to, um, you know, to develop themselves, right? And they, they're harnessing that 20, 30 years worth of experience that someone may have gained in the US Navy or working in US defense industry and bringing that to Australia because um, we didn't necessarily have an additional 20 years to be able to upskill this. And uh, we've been very well supported by the Royal Australian Navy and been able to facilitate that. And um, we look forward to you know, continuing to grow that as we have you know, new additions to different baselines. Well, Liam, I think that's a great point to wrap this up. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about ages. Thank you very much. I could probably talk about it all day. <laughs> I could probably sit here and chat with you a lot longer, especially about uh, your time in the Navy, but uh, we'll save that for another podcast. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can like us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice, as this helps others discover our show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.